Hello and welcome to the European Respiratory Journal podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. My name is James Chalmers and I'm the chief editor of the European Respiratory Journal. And it's a very special podcast today because we've all just returned from the European Respiratory Society Congress in Milan, where we've seen some fantastic science as well as catching up with colleagues and friends. And so as a recap of the Congress, I've been joined today by Don, Isabella and Juan, who are going to give us their highlights of the ERS Congress, as well as talking a bit about the best of the ERJ session that we held at the Congress in Milan. Hi there, my name is Juan Soriano. I'm a medical epidemiologist at the Department of Respiratory Medicine in Hospital de la Princesa in Madrid, Spain. I'm also an associate editor of the ERJ. My name is Isabella Nisi-Maizano. I'm an epidemiology expert in public health and I'm a deputy director of IDESP in Montpellier, France. My name is Don Sin. I'm the deputy chief editor of the ERJ and currently based in Vancouver, Canada. Great to have you all with us today. So Isabella, let's start with you. You gave a wonderful talk at the Best of the ERJ session. Give us a, a little flavor of the highlights that you put forward in that session. Thank you, James. I, I forgot to say that I'm a section editor for evolution and climate change. That's why of ERJ, that's why I was invited to highlight what we published. So very briefly, I underlined the links between the climate changes and respiratory health in two ways. One way, which is less known, is the fact that when we prescribe Saba to our patients, we are in some way engendering the climate change. This has never been taken into account. Mostly we think about inhalers because of hydrofluorocarbon propellants, but the sub also are there. So these are, I present very briefly results from 21 countries that were collected, showing that there was an abuse. We can really use this term of these sub with some countries, for example, Canada, using more than others. And I think it was useful to underline this link because ERJ already published last year something of the same issue, and this is in some way a tradition. Then, very briefly, some data on the tropic storms and respiratory health because there is a very important, significant relationship between respiratory mortality and stops, arrogance, uh, etc., which is uh, due to the fact that uh, infection, humidity, and there was a DRJ, a nice uh, section uh, with the speaker, Eva Polverino, that underlined uh, the mechanism uh, that uh, can explain uh, such uh, results. Uh, Eva Polverino from uh, Spain. And then, uh, uh, as usually, I presented some uh, papers uh, on air pollution and the first paper on air pollution, there was an entire session on that is that if you reduce air pollution, the trajectory of a lung function improve in children. These are results from the Bansley court study where now the individuals are adults, followed up uh, 24 years. So this is a fantastic data set showing 
that uh, children were living where pollution were reduced have uh, a better growth of lung functioning. And what has to be really underlying is that Sweden is known as to be a clean country, you know? So air pollution is low, but uh, even with the low concentration, this uh, impact of pollution could be seen. And then there was my last uh, article was about the fact that uh, we know that COVID is a more severe in the case of air pollution. This was uh, seen since the beginning in the Lombardy region in Italy, which is very polluted. But uh, in ERJ, we published a very interesting paper from Belgium in finding salt, S-O-O-T, because I pronounce it badly, <laughs> I cannot do better, but in blood, of this patient, according to the concentration of this sort of the event was more or less severe. So associated the last, unfortunately, with the death. And this is a really a proof that air pollution can't impact COVID-19. I finished saying that pollution is not isolated, that we have to take into account what is called the exposome, the interaction among the several factors. A lot of really important highlights in climate change and air pollution in the ERJ this year, which you've brought to the fore really, really nicely. I'm going to pick up on one point, the first paper that you discussed there around the impact of MDI inhalers. We've just published another paper in the ERJ, Jürgen Vespo is the first author, where they've modeled that if you were to change 15% of people in Denmark from MDIs to DPIs, it would be the equivalent of saving 8 million liters of diesel or heating 25,000 fewer homes in terms of the impact on climate. So I want to bring in Don and, and Juan on this. It's obviously a controversial area. But lots of papers suggesting that inhalers make a big impact on climate. But so far, I don't feel that that's made a huge impact on people's prescribing choices. You know, how do we move from evidence to impact here? Maybe Don first. Well, I respectfully disagree with that because um, when I was going to medical school in the 80s, everybody was using CFC-based MDIs or PMDIs. And with the advent of the Montreal Protocol in 1988-89, where CFCs were banned, I think vast majority of the, certainly Western world, went to dichlorocarbon-based MDIs, which have little impact on the ozone layer. Unfortunately, it, it is still a greenhouse gas. So I think that's an example from history where dramatic changes can happen if there is a worldwide commitment towards that happening. And I see the same thing here is not necessarily to ban the use of pressurized MDIs, but to create a better alternative. And I think many companies are now doing that, that have similar efficacy and similar acceptance by patients, but at the same time are not greenhouse gases. And thus we can avoid you know, contribution to catastrophic consequences down the road. And where possible, physicians can switch patients already to dry powder inhalers, which do not have the same climate impact as PMDIs. So I'm not pessimistic. I'm very optimistic that this can happen. We need to not only highlight the importance of switching over, 
and to finding alternatives, but to lobby governmental agencies and our policymakers to effectuate changes as soon as possible rather than later. Yeah, that's a very important point because at the moment I think it, the evidence is very much now left to the clinicians to make a decision based on that evidence rather than it being heavily either governmentally promoted or guideline-based. Juan, is that your feeling as well? Are you optimistic as Don is? I am optimistic, but I know that this is a very hot area of research. And actually in this uh, ERS in Milano, my group just presented research that only in Spain the misuse of inhalers produce the equivalent of 500 metric tons of CO2. So that is a lot of cars and a lot of diesel. So uh, my point is that probably we have to balance the health of our patients, the economy in dollars or in euros associated with the management of these canisters, but also the environmental impact of these changes. Yeah. So thank you. That's a, a great discussion. Isabella, what was your other highlight of the ERS Congress? I think that my highlight was this huge session with many people attending on occupational and environmental determinants of common respiratory diseases. I want to underline that occupation is very often neglected, but we know that this is a major risk factor for all I think uh, respiratory disease, uh, most uh, at least. So there was a nice section in the really on diet uh, as a promising approach uh, to COPD prevention. Uh, this was by Rafael Varazzo with uh, colleagues in Harvard, uh, etc. that really presenting the mechanism for uh, respiratory doctors that uh, sometimes are not aware of the situation. Then. Uh, uh, there was an um, impact of work-related risk on diagnosis and treatment of asthma. We know that the attribution and fraction of uh, asthma is 15%, uh, even when taking good uh, court study, etc. So this is uh, probably more uh, there than that. Uh, and then uh, there was also a, a, a nice talk on something we know less, uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis uh, and uh, the multiple exposure for uh, one uh, disease that has not so many phenotypes. Because in general, we have a need to define my cases. COPD is with S, asthma is with an S elephant. So, because we have a difference in autopsy, et cetera. In this case, uh, apparently, it uh, was uh, quite uh, convincing. There was also, obviously, COPD uh, by Sara de Mateis. And so, very wonderfully useful uh, session on uh, what we need to know when seeing a patient. We don't need not to forget to ask what was your job. Thank you. So you emphasize nicely that occupations are a little bit neglected as a research field. So important to remind our listeners that the ERJ is very happy to receive papers on occupational lung disease. So thanks for highlighting that, Isabella. I'll hand over now to Don. Well, thank you. Um, Joanne, you gave a very nice talk on the best of ERJ papers with regards to COVID and lung COVID in the past year. Which study struck out most for you? Well, let me start by asking you a question, Don. In less than four years of research on COVID-19, you know how many papers are in PubMed? 
Boy, I, I wish you could have given me that uh, question before the podcast. I would have uh, Googled it or PubMed it. <laughs> Just give me an educated guess. Five million? No, come on. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that there are more than 400,000. This is more than all the papers on asthma and COPD in the history of PubMed. So in a way, we have a lot of information on COVID-19 and on long COVID. In particular, in our journal, the ERJ, we have had 387 papers. So we need ways to summarize this type of information because in a way, it's something like an intoxication. But if I can highlight two papers, I would highlight three. One is a study on clinical trials of clock and colleagues. And they were doing parenteral steroids in pneumonia due to COVID-19. This was positive. Also, the living guidelines that were headed by our chief editor, James, this has been also something that probably has saved lives, and it was a resource for many pneumonologists. And if only also the functional scale for long COVID by Clock and colleagues in the Netherlands, this was an adaptation of a scale used for pulmonary rehab, and it had received more than 200 references in the first year. So this is something that this has been used for long COVID. I mean, obviously the number of papers on COVID and long COVID has declined uh, significantly over the past year. But have we learned as much as we need to learn about COVID? Or are there things we still need to do research on to better understand this pandemic? Well, for sure, we have a lot to learn and the pandemic is not finished. If we consider just 2023, still one in six of the papers that we publish in the ERJ, so that's 16%, are on COVID or long COVID. And there are many unknowns, including the management, for instance, on long COVID, that just I take to the opportunity to remember our audience that by 1st of November, we have a call for papers on, on long COVID. So if you have a cohort that is large in patients and has more than two years of follow-up or has a reference group to compare, or you have a lot of data from Biomedicare or all of the previous ones, we will welcome this and we will take good care during the peer review process in a special issue. Very good. Thanks for uh, reminding us. Uh, VRJ has a special theme issue that will come out later on this year. Uh, the deadline for submission is November 1, uh, and we encourage uh, all investigators across the world who study lung COVID to submit their best papers uh, to VRJ. We will certainly welcome them and provide good feedback. Um, while we're on the topic of long COVID, what is the one or two area of research we really need to see to advance this field for, and most importantly, help the millions of patients who are suffering from long COVID worldwide? Well, we need a lot of descriptive epidemiology on long COVID. Now we are thinking that about one in 10 to one in eight people with acute COVID will develop one year later what we call now persistent COVID or long COVID. We need to know the medications that reduce the incidence and the severity. So far, only vaccination and metformin 
are the only treatments that reduce the incidence and the severity. But in a way, because only in Europe, it is estimated that more than 6 million patients are already having the symptoms and the definition of the WHO of long COVID, the massive influx that this will make in respiratory departments, but also in primary care, we need to handle this with care. So if I can just um, re reframe that, BRJ would like to see large studies on epidemiology, natural history, as well as those focused on therapeutics and those that provide mechanistic insight to what long COVID is. It's probably going to be a heterogeneous disorder with distinct endophenotypes, and we would definitely like to see those papers at the journal. Well, thanks so much. I thought you, you know, your talk was powerful and poignant, and uh, it's great to see all the advances that are taking place in both COVID and long COVID. Joanne, do you have any um, last words? Yeah, if I may, on the highlights of this ERS, I would say two. One, of course, is people. Many people that we work by email or over the phone or with video conference, it's great to see them at least once a year. And the days are full and the nights are full, so new ideas come and new collaborations. And in terms of research, something came out during this ERS and these new parameters to identify early COPD. So there were a lot of research and a lot of discussion on the ratio FEV3 over FEV6 and also parameter D in force spirometry. So these are alternatives to oscillometry or even high dose computer tomography. And in a way, early COPD is something that, again, we are doing a lot of descriptive epidemiology and now there are clinical trials to try to identify by treating COPD early, we can reduce outcomes later. Very good. Isabella, do you have uh, a comment? I think that uh, we need to not forget the marginalized population overall in other countries, even if ERS is wonderful because it's open to everyone. But uh, we see that uh, people from uh, some of our countries are not there and that they have uh, the same health issues, sometimes even worse, a lot of environmental and health inequalities. So I think that uh, ERS is of the goal, good way, but we can improve that. So it's been great to hear Joan and Isabella's highlights of ERS. Don, what, what was your highlight of ERS? Well, most of the time when I go to these conferences, I uh, end up on posters or sessions regarding COPD. But uh, in my new role at ERJ, I had the opportunity to take in more broadly what, what was happening at the ERS. I was struck by a few things. One is how big the conference has become. I think over 20,000 participants came to the meeting. Two is how international the meeting has uh, become. And I'd like to highlight one particular study that that well demonstrate this. And that was the SARCOID or SARCOID uh, study that was uh, presented where uh, investigators in India tackled a very important problem, which is what is the optimal dose of prednisone or corticosteroids in treating SARCOID patients? And they found that 40 milligrams as opposed to 20 milligrams was not superior in enhancing outcomes over uh, 18 months. I thought that was a very clever study, 
very important study for management of patients uh, with sarcoid. There are millions across the world. And unfortunately, I think millions are being poisoned by high doses of steroids. So I thought this was a management-altering, patient-outcome-altering study and published in this month's issue, September issue of the ERJ. Another study that sort of struck me was the historic study. It is a COPD study. There are, you know, COPD studies are dime a dozen, but this was special. This was very different. They took 190 patients and performed bronchoscopy on every single one of them and looked at uh, airway smooth muscle as a biomarker for predicting steroid responsiveness in these patients. You know, I think respirologists or pulmonologists in general have been reluctant to use bronchoscopy as a research tool in any setting, but it is a armamentarium that we commonly use in clinical practice and in the right setting and in the right framework, it is very safe. And I think it's a very, very important research tool to understand pathophysiology and the phenotypes of COPD. And in some ways, COPD research has been stalled. Certainly therapeutic development has stalled, uh, notwithstanding dupilumab. And I think bronchoscopy is a way forward for us to open up the research arena. Regardless of what the finding of historic was, I thought the approach should be commended and should be emulated for future COPD research. The last study I wanted to highlight done by Marius Hepper from Germany. It was a Sotatercept uh, trial. The main outcomes were already published in the New England Journal of Medicine. But in this September issue of the ERJ, he and his colleagues provided us the hemodynamic readouts from that paper. And it was astonishing. For the first time, a drug to treat idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension had the potential to modify pulmonary vessels and perhaps even the heart itself. It just shows you the importance of translational research in identifying novel therapeutic targets, in this case, activants, but how that uh, science has led to this, I think, a tremendous breakthrough from someone who's worked in biomarker research for 25 years. It was gratifying to see that biomarkers such as uh, pulmonary hemodynamics can translate into improved health outcomes for our patients. And I think that's something to, uh, again, admire and emulate by other communities such as the one that I'm in, uh, which is COPD. Some of the things that I, I wish I saw more of but did not were focus on newer technologies such as single cell RNA sequencing. I didn't see much of that, let alone some of the more sophisticated single cell RNA sequencing um, such as ATAC-seq and so on. I know many investigators around the world are doing those things in pulmonary sciences. would like to see more of that. I think there were only about three or four posters in total that dealt with it. The other was, I thought overall the number of high quality imaging studies was relatively low. You know, lung disease lends itself to imaging, you know, whether it's CT scan and more recently xenon-based MRI, optical coherence tomography, which um, was featured uh, recently because the inventors received the, the Bakey Award for their innovation. So these are th some of the things that uh, hopefully in the next DRS we will see more of because these are really needed to advance our field forward.
So really fantastic randomized trials being presented at the Congress, but also a call there by Don for a bit more on the translational and the imaging side, so areas that we can improve as a field. So I'd really like to thank Don, Isabella, and Juan for joining us for this special highlights of the ERS podcast. A reminder that all of the talks that we've talked about today, all of the papers that we've talked about are available on the ERS online platform. So you can go back and watch both the best of the ERJ session, but also the papers that Don, Juan and Isabella have talked about. Those are available on the platform to rewatch. And most of the studies that we've talked about today were published in the European Respiratory Journal. So you can download the PDFs from our website. So I'd like to thank our guests this week for speaking to us about the ERS Congress. We hope to see you next year in Vienna, and we hope to have you listen to us when we bring back the next month's edition of the ERJ podcast. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.